Hello, beautiful people. This is Venerable Tikwang Tree from Dharma Tree, and you're listening to Dharma on Demand. So we are continuing our discussion on the Eightfold Path, and today we are on the Sixth Path, which is Right Effort or Right Diligence, Semyak Pradhana. So right effort or diligence is the kind of energy that helps us realize the noble evil path. The, purific- the purification of conduct established by the prior three factors serves as the basis for the next division of the path, the division of concentration. So this present phase of practice, which advances from moral restraint to direct mental training, comprises of the three factors of right efforts, right mindfulness, and right concentration. The division of concentration gains um, its name from the goal to which it aspires, the power of sustained concentration, itself required as the support for insight and wisdom. Wisdom is the primary tool for liberation, but the penetrating vision it yields can only open up when the mind has been composed and collected. Right concentration brings the requisite stillness to the mind by unifying it with the um, with undistracted focus on on a, on a suitable object of meditation in a state called samadhi. So to do so, however, the factor of concentration needs the aid of effort and mindfulness. So right effort provides the energy demanded by the task. Right mindfulness provides the steadying point for awareness. Energy, vidya, is the mental factor behind right effort. Uh, It can appear in either wholesome or unwholesome forms. It's the same factor that fuels desire, aggression, violence, and ambition on one hand, and generosity, self-discipline, kindness, concentration, and understanding on the other. The exertion involved in right effort is a wholesome form of energy, but it is something more specific than that, namely the energy and wholesome states of consciousness directed to liberation from suffering. So for wholesome energy to become a contributing or a contributor to the path, um, it has to be guided by right view and right intention and to work together with the other path factors as as well. Otherwise, if the energy is in an ordinary wholesome state of mind, it's only accumulating merit that ripens with the cycle of birth and death. So time and time again, though, the Buddha has stressed the need for effort, diligence, and exertion, and unflagging perseverance. The reason why effort is so crucial is because each person has to work out his or her own deliverance. Right, So the Buddha does what he can by pointing out the path to liberation for us, but the rest involves putting the path into practice, a task that demands energy. This energy is to be applied to the cultivation of the mind, which forms the focus for the entire path. So the starting point is the defiled mind, afflicted and deluded. And the goal is the liberated mind, which is purified and illuminated by wisdom. What comes in between is the unremitting effort to transform the defiled mind into the liberated mind. And so the work of self-cultivation is not easy. There is no one that can do it for you um, but ourselves. But it is not impossible. What is needed is effort. 
So right effort has four characteristics called the fourfold right efforts or the four great endeavors, which are to prevent the arising of unarisen unwholesome states, to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen, to arouse wholesome states that have not yet arisen, and to maintain and perfect wholesome states already arisen. So the unwholesome states are the defilements and the thoughts, emotions, and intentions derived from them, whether breaking forth into action or remaining confined within. The wholesome states are states of mind unattained by defilements, especially those conducive to liberation. The unwholesome side requires that the defilements lying dormant be prevented from erupting and that the active defilements already present be expelled. So the wholesome side requires that the undeveloped liberating factors first be brought into being, then persistently developed into the point of full maturity. So the first characteristic to prevent the arising of unarisen wholesome states, the Buddha gives this quote, Herein the disciple rouses his will to avoid the arising of evil, of unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. And he makes effort, stirs up his energy, exerts his mind, and strives. So the first side of right effort aims at overcoming unwholesome states, states of mind that are tainted by defilements. Since they impede concentration, the defilements are usually presented in a fivefold set called the five hindrances, which are essential desire, ill will, dullness, and drowsiness, restlessness, and worry, and doubt. And so the first two hindrances, such sensual desire and ill will, are the strongest of the set. They are representing greed and aversion. Sensual desire is interpreted in two ways. The first is lust for the five senses, the five sense pleasures, as in the agreeable sights, sound, smell, taste, and touch. Or in a broader interpretation, the terms become... Uh, becomes uh, inclusive of craving in all its in all of its modes and forms, whether for sense pleasures, wealth, power, fame, um, position, or anything else that can settle that we can settle upon. So the other uh, hindrances, ill will, is a synonym for aversion. Right, it comprises of hatred, anger, resentment, repulsion whether directed toward others or ourselves, objects, or any or situations. And the next hindrance is dullness and drowsiness. So dullness here manifests, manifests as mental inertia, right? which is basically just drowsiness. It's mental sinking. It's heaviness of mind or sleepiness. It's basically not enough energy. The fourth hindrance is restlessness and worry. Restlessness is the agitation or the excitement. It's basically the opposite of dullness. It's too much energy. And so worry is remorse over past mistakes and anxiety about their possible uh, undeserved or undesired consequences. And the last hindrance, which is doubt, signifies a chronic indecisiveness, right? And a lack of resolution. It may be doubt in our practice or even in the Buddha, his teachings, and his path. So the first effort to be made regarding the hindrances is the effort to prevent the unarisen hindrances from arising. This is also called the endeavor to restrain. And the effort to hold the hindrances in check is imperative throughout our whole meditation practice. So when the hindrances do arise, 
they disperse attention and darken the quality of our awareness. The hindrances don't come from outside the mind, but from within it. So generally, what sparks the hindrances into activity is the input that is afforded by, by the sense experience, right? So our body is equipped with the five senses, or the five sense faculties, each receptive to its own specific kind of data or object, right? The eyes to forms, the ear to sounds, the nose to smells, the tongue to taste, the body to tangible sense objects, and it continues and it continually um, impinge on those senses, which play the information they receive to the mind, where it is processed, evaluated, and accorded an appropriate response. But the mind can deal with the impressions it receives in different ways, governed in the first place by the manner in which it attends to them, right? So when the mind adverts to the incoming data carelessly without mindfulness, with unwise consideration, the sense objects tend to stir up unwholesome states. They do this either directly through their immediate um, impact or else indirectly by dispositioning memory traces, uh, which later may swell up as, as the objects of defiled thoughts, images, and fantasies. So as a general rule, the defilement that is activated corresponds to the object. Attractive objects provoke desire, disagreeable objects provoke ill will. So since an uncontrolled response to this to the sensory input stimulates latent defilements that have not yet arisen, what eventually, or what's evidently need to prevent them from arising is control over the senses. And the Buddha teaches as the disciples for keeping, um, I'm sorry, the Buddha teaches as the discipline for keeping the hindrances in check, an exercise called the restraint of the senses. And he gives us this quote. When he perceives a form with the eye, a sound with the ear, a smell with the nose, a taste with the tongue, an impression with the body, or an object with the mind, he apprehends neither the sign nor the particulars. As he strives to ward off that through which evil and unwholesome states, greed and sorrow would arise, if he remained with unguarded senses, and he watches over his senses, restrains his senses. So restraint on of the senses doesn't mean, uh, doesn't mean the denial of the senses, retreating into, you know, like a total withdrawal from sensory world, right? This is obviously impossible. And even if it could be achieved, the real problem would still not be solved. For the defilements lie in the mind and not in the sense organs or the objects themselves. So the key to sense control is indicated by the phrase not apprehending the sign or the particulars, right? The sign here is the object's general appearance. So insofar as this appearance is grasped at the basis for defiled thoughts, the particulars are its less conspicuous uh, features, right? They are the details of the object. So if sense control is lacking, the mind uh, roams recklessly over the sense fields, right? 
First, it grasps the sign, which sets the defilement into motion. Then it explores the particulars, which permits them to multiply and thrive. So to restrain the senses requires that mindfulness and clear understanding be applied to the encounter with the sense fields. Sense consciousness occurs in a series um, as a sequence of momentary cognitive acts, each having its own special task. So the initial stage in the series occur as automatic functions. First, the mind observes the object, then apprehends it, then admits the um, percept, examines it, and identifies it. Immediately following the identification, a space opens up in which there occurs a free evaluation of the object, leading to the choice of a response, right? So when mindfulness is absent, the latent defilement that are pushing for an opportunity to emerge will motivate a wrong consideration. One will grasp, grasp the sign of the object, explore its details, and thereby give the defilement their opportunity. So on account of greed, one will become fascinated by an agreeable object, right? On account of aversion, one will be repelled by a disagreeable object. But when applies, but when but when one applies mindfulness to this sensory encounter, one is able to kind of nip the cognitive process in the bud before it can evolve into the stages that stimulate the dormant defilements. So mindfulness holds the hindrances in check by keeping the mind at the level of which it, it, it is sensed. Then, with this um, loosened awareness as a guide, the mind can proceed to comprehend the object as it is without being led astray. The second characteristic is to abandon the arisen unwholesome states. And the Buddha says, Herein the disciple rouses his will to overcome the evil, unwholesome states that have already arisen, and he makes effort, stirs up his energy, exerts his mind, and strives. So despite the efforts at the sense control, the defilements may still surface, right? So they swell up from the depths of our consciousness, from the buried seeds of our past uh, accumulations to ripen into unwholesome thoughts and emotions. When this happens, a new kind of effort is necessary. The effort to abandon arisen unwholesome states called the endeavor to abandon. And the Buddha says, he does not retain any thought of sensual lust, ill will or harmfulness or any other evil and unwholesome states that may have arisen. He abandons them, dispels them, destroys them, causes them to disappear. So just as a skilled physician has different medicines for different ailments, so the Buddha has different antidotes for the different hindrances as well. In an important uh, discourse that the Buddha explains, five techniques for expelling distracting thoughts. The first is to expel the defiled thought with a wholesome thought which is its exact opposite. So for each of the five hindrances, there is a specific remedy, a line of uh, type of meditation designed to expressly to deflate it and destroy those hindrances. So for desire, a general remedy is the meditation on impermanence, which 
which knocks away the underlying prop of clinging, the implicit assumption um, that the object clung to are stable and durable, that they will last forever. So for desire in the specific form of sensual lust, the most potent antidote is the contemplation of the unattractive nature of the body, right? The reflections on repulsiveness on the 32 parts of the body. This is a pretty important meditation, especially for monks and nuns. And then for ill will meets its proper remedy in the meditation on loving kindness, meta, meta meditation, which banishes all traces of hatred and anger through the altruistic wish that all beings be well and happy. And then the dispelling of dullness and drowsiness calls for a specific effort to arouse energy, right? Because this is too, we have too little energy here. So for which several methods are suggested. The visualization of a brilliant ball of light is one. Doing walking meditation, reflection or meditation on death, uh, maranasati, or simply making a firm determination to continue striving. Then we have restless, restlessness and worry are most effectively countered by uh, turning the mind to a simple object that tends to calm it down, right? So mindfulness of breathing, for example, anapanasati. Lastly, in the case of doubt, the special remedy is investigation, to make inquiries, ask questions, and really study the teachings until the obscure points become clearer for you. So whereas the first of the five methods for expelling hindrances are specific to each hindrance, the other four utilize general approaches. The second um, marshals the factor of shame, right, and moral dread to abandon the unwanted thoughts. And our, um, one reflects on the thoughts as vile and ignoble or considers it, it considers it as undesirable consequences until the inner revulsion sets in which drives the thought away. The third method involves a deliberate diversion of attention. So when one when, when an unwholesome thought arises and yells to be noticed, instead of indulging in it, one can simply um, we can just shut it out by redirecting our attention somewhere else, to re redirect our attention elsewhere. The fourth method uses the opposite approach. So instead of training or turning away from the unwanted thought, one confronts it directly as an object and then scrutinizes it um, and its features and investigates its source. When this is done, the thought quietly, the, the thought quiets down and eventually disappears. The fifth method is to be used only as a last resort, and it is suppression, and it is vigor vigorously restraining the unwholesome thought with the power of our will. So by applying these five methods with skill and uh, discretion, the Buddha says one becomes a master of all the pathways of thought. One is no longer the subject of the mind, when, but its master. Whatever, um, whatever thoughts you want to think or don't want to think, you will have control over it. Even if it is unwholesome thoughts occasionally arise, one can dispel them immediately. The third characteristic, to arouse unarisen wholesome states, the Buddha says, herein the disciple rouses his will to arouse wholesome states that have not yet arisen. 
and he makes effort, stirs up his energy, exerts his mind, and strives. So simultaneously with the removal of defilements, right effort also imposes the task of cultivating wholesome states of mind. This involves two divisions, the arousing of wholesome states not yet arisen and the development of wholesome states that have already arisen. So the first of the two divisions is also known as the endeavor to develop. Though the wholesome states can be developed in various ways, meditation and contemplation, the four foundations of mindfulness, eightfold path, etc., the Buddha lays specific stress on a set called the seven factors of enlightenment. These factors are mindfulness, investigation of dharmas, energy or effort, rapture or joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And the Buddha says, thus he develops the factors of enlightenment based on solitude, on detachment, on cessation, and ending in deliverance, namely the enlightenment factors of mindfulness and investigation of dharmas, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. The seven states are grouped together as enlightenment factors, but because they lead to enlightenment, and because they uh, constitute enlightenment, in the preliminary stages of the path, they prepare the way for the great realization, right? In the end, the end, um, in the end they remain as its components. The experience of enlightenment perfect and complete understanding is just these seven components working together in unison to break all the shackles and bring final release from suffering. So the way to enlightenment starts with mindfulness. Mindfulness clears the ground for insight into the nature of all things by bringing to light the phenomena in the now, the present moment, stripped of all the subjective commentary, interpretations, and projections then, when mindfulness has brought to bear phenomena um, into focus, the factor of investigation steps in to search out their characteristics, conditions, and consequences. Whereas mindfulness is basically receptive, investigation is an active factor which probes and analyzes and dissects phenomena to uncover their fundamental structures. The work of investigation requires energy, which develops in three stages. The first is inceptive energy. It shakes, off the, it shakes off lethargy and arouses initial enthusiasm. As the work of contemplation advances, energy gathers momentum and enters the second stage of perseverance. And then finally, at the peak, energy reaches the third stage, invincibility, where it derives uh, contemplation forward, leaving the hindrances powerless um, and able to stop it. But as energy increases, rapture develops a pleasurable interest in the object of meditation. So rapture gradually builds up, ascending to ecstatic heights, waves of bliss run through your body, the mind glows with joy, and you become... um, confident and the your confidence intensifies but these experiences as encouraging as they are still contain a flaw and they create an excitation verging on restlessness 
So with further practice, however, rapture subsides and a tone of quietness starts to set in, signaling the rise of the fifth factor, tranquility. So rapture remains present, but it's now subdued and the work of contemplation proceeds with self-possessed serenity. So then tranquility uh, brings to ripeness concentration, one-pointness unification of mind. Then, with the deepening of concentration, the last alignment factor comes into dominance. And this is equanimity. This is inward poise and balance, free from the two uh, defects of excitement and inertia that comes with rapture and tranquility. So when inertia prevails, energy must be aroused. And then when excitement prevails, it's necessary to exercise restraint. But when both the both uh, defects have been eradicated, the practice can unfold evenly without need for concern. And the last characteristic is to maintain arisen wholesome states. And the Buddha says, herein the disciple rouses his will to maintain the wholesome things that have already arisen and not to allow them to disappear, but to bring them to growth, to maturity, and to the full perfection of development. And he makes effort, stirs up his energy, exerts his mind, and strives. So the last of the, of the four right efforts uh, aims at maintaining the arisen wholesome factors and bringing them to maturity, called the endeavor to maintain, right? This is, it, it explain, it's explained as the effort to keep firmly in the mind a favorable object of concentration that has arisen. So the work of guarding the object causes the seven alignment factors to gain stability and gradually increase in strength until they are issued in the liberating realization. And this makes the or this marks the the culmination culmination of right effort, which is the goal which the countless individual acts of exertion finally reach fulfillment. And that, my friends, I know it's a little bit long, <laughs> but um, Ryford is very much needed in our practice. And so as we were able to explore just now, this is the energy, this is the motivation, this is the power we need to strive and to be diligent in our study and our practice. Because it's very important to, of course, study and to know the Dharma and the practices that the Dharma teaches, but it's just as important to actually put those practices into actions, right? So just by knowing the Dharma, just by knowing how to do things or understanding, you know, at face value or subject or subjectively the, the Dharmas, um, it's very more important to actually contemplate and meditate on them that we were able to look at them deeply to gain true insight when we dissect them and when we kind of analyze the teachings and really see the core uh, fruits that they that they are trying to teach. And it's only through meditation and through contemplation that we're able to actually gain those insightful realizations and that true wisdom of insight comes from there. And so... I'm always emphasizing, and of course our teachers always emphasizing that you have to not just study and learn, but you also have to practice. Otherwise, you're just carrying around a pretty 
heavy bag of knowledge and not really be able to put them into use. So I hope that explanation as long and probably very wordy as it was, I hope it was beneficial for you and I hope you're able to actually put into practice what you have learned and what you know so that you can too attain full complete enlightenment. Thank you for listening. Namo Shakyamuni Buddha.